You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. John chapter 7 verse 1 reads, After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up also. Not publicly, but in private. Now we've come to the start of chapter 7 in John's Gospel, and it's a turning point in Jesus' life and his ministry. John tells us that the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. John's references to the feasts in his Gospel are like a time stamp on Jesus' life. In John 2, Jesus cleanses the temple during the Feast of Passover. In John 5, when he heals the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, it's during an unspecified feast of the Jews in Jerusalem. In John 6, when the feeding of the 5,000 occurs, it's at the time of the Passover, which John there calls the Feast of the Jews. That Passover, the Jewish equivalent of our Easter, ticked over the beginning of the last year of Jesus' life. Now it's the Feast of Booths which occurs around October. It's about six months after the Passover feast of John chapter 6. So that means that Jesus has only got six months left to live. And those final six months reveal an increasing opposition and a greater determination to put him to death. But they also open the door on some of the most intimate and some of the most profound teaching to be found anywhere in the Bible, as Jesus increasingly focuses his attention on teaching his disciples. Now I'll talk more about the feasts, and especially the Feast of Booths, in a coming message, because they're important to help us grasp the significance of what Jesus says in these next couple of chapters. But for now, I want to concentrate on these opening verses of John chapter 7. Jesus, as we know, was rejected everywhere he went. They either hated what he said, and especially they hated his claims to be God, or they lost interest in him when he refused to perform miracles for them. Now Isaiah had prophesied several hundred years before Christ that Jesus would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, he says, and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. That's Isaiah 53, verse 3. So it was certainly no surprise to Jesus. He knew what he was in for before he ever set foot on the earth in the flesh. Should be no surprise to us either then when our friends and our family reject Christ. Human nature hasn't yet evolved beyond that instinct 
to ignore or to hate God. But we often get discouraged, don't we, when those closest to us reject this one who is most precious to us. Sometimes our own family members who put up the greatest opposition and the greatest barriers to Christ and to our faith and who mock and ridicule us the most. And we wonder why they would do that. What have we done wrong that they would be so apathetic at best or hostile at worst towards this one whom we've built our lives around? Jesus experienced this long before we ever did. His own brothers rejected him. wonder, what would it have been like growing up in Jesus' family? Have you ever thought about that? There's some, uh, some religious traditions that say Jesus performed miracles as an infant and uh, did all sorts of amazing things when he was a child, but that's not scriptural. The Bible actually makes pretty clear that Jesus was an ordinary unassuming person he had no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him Isaiah says but uh, what would it have been like growing up with the son of God as your brother clearly his brothers and his sisters didn't seem to think much of him because it tells us in verse 5 of the gospel here that even his brothers didn't believe in him was there nothing about Jesus that stood out to them Nothing that made them wonder if there was something special about this guy, this lad, this teenager, this young man that was their brother. There's nothing according to scripture. He was just another boy growing up in Capernaum. But was Jesus the goody two-shoes of the family that made everyone else look bad by comparison? We know that he never sinned, so maybe that's why they rejected him. He was always uh, mother's favourite because he did what he was told. Luke two, Luke chapter 2 tells us the story of the 12-year-old Jesus going up to the temple with his family for the feast of Passover. When it's time to leave, everyone heads home except Jesus, who stayed in the temple listening to the teachers and asking them questions. Joseph and Mary didn't realise that Jesus wasn't with them until the next day, halfway home. Now we're horrified that they would, wouldn't make sure that their young son would be part of their group as they left. But in those days, people travelled in large groups, potentially hundreds of family and friends from their town when they went up to the Passover feast and various other feasts. So they probably quite, re- quite reasonably assumed he was in one of the other crowds, one of the other families with his cousins or friends or someone like that. When they realised he wasn't with them, they doubled back to Jerusalem and they found him still there in the temple. Um, Now this is two days later and he's still there in the temple. I wonder what Jesus did overnight. doesn't tell us, but anyway. He's still there in the temple talking to the teachers. Now Mary, his mother, questioned him with that curious blend of accusation and concern that only mothers seem to possess. Son, why have you treated us like this? She starts. Your father and I have been worried sick looking for you. And we know Jesus' response, even as a 12-year-old, he knew he had a greater purpose in life. Why were you looking for me, he said. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? 
But he went down with them, it tells us in Luke, and came to Nazareth, Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus was an obedient son to his earthly parents, just as he was to his heavenly father. Surely his brothers and sisters could see that about him. They lived side by side with him all their lives. But proximity to truth and godliness doesn't guarantee belief. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that in your family that are not Christians? Have you ever wondered why your family doesn't seem to appreciate your relationship with Jesus Christ or your Christian faith? There can be a whole bunch of reasons, of course, and we can beat ourselves up over, over it. Am I not a good enough witness to them? Have I been too frightened to tell them clearly about Christ? Have I been too overbearing the classic Bible basher and put them off? Sometimes we wish and pray that Jesus would just reveal himself to our family, to our friends, so that they would see what we see and turn to him for salvation. But is that really the solution to the problem? Did it work for that, that way for those who saw him face to face every day? Those who heard him teach and saw him perform miracles frequently? It didn't work that way for them, not even remotely. At the very least, you can take some comfort in the fact that you're not alone if your family and your friends reject your faith and your Lord. Because Jesus had the same problem. Not only did his brothers not believe in him though, here in this uh, passage in John 7, they seemed to be taunting him, challenging him to prove himself. Leave here and go to Judea, it says in verse 3, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It's almost as if his brothers are saying to him, come on, big shot, you think you're so clever, but you're really only a big fish in a small pond out here. Prove yourself. Go to Jerusalem where the real big shots are and see if they'll believe in you. That'll sort you out once and for all. You know, it was never Jesus' way at the time to do miracles just to draw crowds and impress people. And he was not about to do it at their command either. I doubt that that's his way even today. Seems to me that the greatest growth in the church and the longest lasting change in people comes from one-on-one -on -one evangelism and discipleship, not the big flashy events. In fact, a study was conducted some years ago about the long-term impact of mass evangelism events, like the Billy Graham Crusades, for example, and those similar sorts of things. And it found that in spite of the multiplied thousands of people who went forward to receive Christ, after 18 months, only 5% were found in the church. That's a horrific figure. It's a disturbing statistic. What happened to the rest of them? There was Billy Graham, a million or more people, supposedly gave their life to Christ in his crusades. Reinhard Bonnke and who knows who else. Untold millions, 18 months later, 5% in a church. 95% have turned their back on Christ. What happened to them? 
Were they like the masses who walked away when Jesus refused to perform miracles for them? Were they like Jesus' brothers who were more interested in flashiness than in the day-to-day grind of Christian life? We'll probably never know, at least not in this life, but it's a warning to us all, nonetheless. Now, I might be reading too much into the comments that Jesus' brothers make here. Maybe they weren't taunting him at all. The text doesn't actually tell us much about the sense of what they are saying. We can't hear their tone of voice, for example. We can't see the expression on their face as they make those comments. So it's all a bit of guesswork. There's a, a number of different thoughts among the commentators about why his brother said this. Some think that they considered him to be a fraud and that he would finally be exposed at Jerusalem. Some think that uh, they'd noticed that public support for Jesus was falling away and that he could revive his popularity if he went to the big smoke. Others thought that Jesus, uh, that they wanted Jesus to begin imposing his authority and become the leader they were looking for to free them from subjection to the Romans, like Judas wanted to do. No doubt there's several other possibilities. Suffice to say, his brothers didn't believe in him at this stage. One day they would, but not yet. Scripture records that Jesus had at least four brothers, technically half-brothers. There's James, Joseph, Simon and Jude are are named and his sisters are mentioned in Matthew 13.55 but they're not actually named there. It would appear that his brothers became believers after the resurrection. James went on to lead the church in Jerusalem. Jude wrote that short letter near the end of our New Testament. His brothers, along with Mary and the women and the other disciples, were devoting themselves to prayer in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. But at this point, his brothers don't believe. In fact, it's not just that they doubted him and refused to believe, they actually thought he was crazy. Mark records that at one point when his family heard what was going on, healing people, casting out demons, profound teaching that they thought he was a nutter. And they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind, it says in Mark 3.21. If Jesus' own family thought he was nuts, do you wonder why our families and our friends won't take him seriously? 19th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle makes the point that seeing Christ's miracles, hearing Christ's teaching, living in Christ's own company, were not enough to make men believers. The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian. All is useless without the effectual and applying work of God the Holy Ghost. No wonder that our Lord said in another place, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Ryle goes on to say, The true servants of Christ in every age will do well to remember this. They're often surprised and troubled to find that in religion they stand alone. They are apt to fancy that it must be their own fault, that all around them are not converted like themselves. They are ready to blame themselves because their families remain worldly and unbelieving. But let them look at the verse before us, Ryle says. In our Lord Jesus Christ, there was not fault 
of either in temper, word or deed. Yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in him. Little wonder then that so many of our friends and our family who haven't seen Christ have no time for him. Little wonder also they would be so hostile towards us. Let's face it, we're all a bunch of contradictions. On our best days, we only very dimly reflect our Saviour. On our worst days, we look more like Christ's enemies. Lord, deliver us from our inconsistencies and our hypocrisies. Now, I was fortunate that my sisters were Christians before I was, so they were happy for me when I became a Christian. But plenty of others I know thought I'd gone a bit soft in the head. My dad was antagonistic towards their faith, my sister's faith, when I was growing up, but he died long before I ever became a Christian, so I never copped the brunt of his opposition. But I know it can be much harder for others. Someone I know was kicked out of her supposedly Christian family for 10 years for becoming a Christian. It's often the most religious people who most vehemently reject Christ and his followers. Just ask Jesus. Just ask the disciples. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Jesus was right when he said, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. On a side note and a warning to Christian singles amongst us, the Bible is pretty clear about the need to be careful in your selection of a husband or a wife. They must be Christians also. If they're not, you face the prospect of a life of hurt and rejection from the one closest to you. Why would you willingly subject yourself to that? Now, I know not many of us want to remain single for the rest of our lives. I certainly don't, so I'm grateful that God gave me Mel 30-something years ago, 32 years ago, 33 years ago now. I look forward to growing old together with her. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore the warnings to not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. We let our heart rule our head too often. And according to Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The heart is a fickle and unreliable leader. And it's not just fickle and unreliable in matters of love. You might go into a relationship optimistic that the love of your life will see how precious Christ is to you and want the same for himself or herself. But it's the sort of optimism you have when you buy a lottery ticket. You hope to win, but really, the prospects are pretty low. We have a friend who did exactly that, actually, acknowledging at the time that he was disobeying scripture by by courting and marrying this non-Christian woman. Praise God, his wife did come to salvation. And they are raising three or four boys now in the faith. But for every one of those who are a success story, I think you could point to 10 or 20 or 50 marriages where the spouse is uninterested at best and hostile at worst. In most cases, it's the Christian partner who succumbs to the pressure and abandons their faith, stops going to church, stops teaching their kids. It's rarely the other way around. Have you ever noticed that? Then what do you do when kids come along? You want to raise them in the faith. 
But what if your partner refuses, your spouse refuses to let them be indoctrinated with religion? Who gives in? It's usually the Christian. Now, I don't mean to suggest that your marriage will be miserable just because you've married an unbeliever. Plenty of Christians have happy marriages with non-Christians. But it will always be lacking in that most important ingredient, a unity of faith and love for Christ. You won't be getting the encouragement and the support that you need to remain passionate about Christ and faithful to him. But what if you're already in a marriage with an unbeliever? Some are that way because they chose to be unequally yoked. Some are unequally yoked now because they've become a Christian since marriage. What do you do about that? Well, the Bible tells you you're not permitted to abandon that marriage, except in very limited and specific circumstances. You need to remain in it and continuing to reflect Christ to your spouse and praying for their salvation. The fact that God can change a heart in an instant should give you hope. He did it for you, didn't he? He changed your heart in an instant. He can do it for your spouse. He did it for Jesus' brothers. He can do it again. So be encouraged. God loves to bless his children and to grant them their desires. But he doesn't guarantee anything. Be warned, Jesus didn't say that a person's enemy, enemies will be those of his own household just to make conversation. But enough of that sidetrack. That's not the only opposition that followers of Jesus can anticipate. It will come at us from all directions. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Have you ever heard anyone uttering evil falsely against you about your faith? Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That appears to be where our society is heading now. The Christians are going to be dragged before the courts and governors and, while not flogged, fined and imprisoned for their faith. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child and the children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, Jesus says, and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of the household? J.B. Phillips puts that verse, if men call the master of the household the prince of evil, What sort of names will they give to his servants? Our society is calling Jesus and Christianity evil today. It's clear that we Christians are becoming a stench in the nostrils of the world. 
Our society is becoming increasingly secular and increasingly militant in its opposition of the church and Christian faith. So don't expect to receive applause for being a Christian. I expect that things will only get worse for us as the years roll on. None of this should surprise us. Not only did Jesus warn us that's what awaits his followers, we've seen his own family reject him. So we need to decide, and we need to decide today, what we will stand for, who we will throw our lot in with. If that be Jesus, then harden up and prepare for a bumpy ride. You know, you need to know what you believe and you need to know why you believe it or you'll never survive the onslaught. And we're called to survive this onslaught. Coming back a bit closer to home, is there anything we can do about our friends and our family who don't believe? Firstly, don't be discouraged. God's plans and God's timing don't usually coincide with ours. Most of my friend's family, the one who rejected her, have become Christians themselves since then. And as a family, they're probably closer than ever now. But it's taken a long time. Jesus' own brothers eventually became believers. But it was in God's timing. Don't give up hope. Don't stop praying for your family. Don't stop doing good to them. Don't stop blessing them. And always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Jesus tells us in verse 7 why he was so hated by everyone. The world cannot hate you, it says, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's what it all boils down to at the end of the day. What Jesus represents, and by extension what we represent, is a different standard. It's another world. Jesus represents a holy God who can't and who won't tolerate evil. And the world loves its evil. The world loves its sin. It doesn't want to give it up. And we, by the very fact that we call ourselves followers of Christ, represent him and his holiness too. And they can smell it on us. Or at least they should be able to smell it on us. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are, <clears throat> we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing as well. He goes on to say to one, a fragrance from death to death. The aroma that sits on us reminds them of death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Have you ever been in a crowded shop and you catch a whiff of someone else's perfume. It's a beautiful aroma. You might not be able to tell exactly who's wearing it, but it's a lovely and attractive aroma. And maybe you get a whiff of someone else who smells like they've been digging trenches in the hot sun all day, dirty and sweaty and unattractive. That's what Paul's saying in these verses. To those who are being saved, that is, other Christians, and those who God has called but hasn't yet saved, We smell sweet. We smell like life to them. We're attractive to them. 
That's one of the reasons why people who are so different in their interests, their background, their experience, their nationality, can be such close friends in the church. We all smell like Christ. But to everyone else, we stink. Maybe nothing they can quite put their finger on, but we are repulsive to them, like rotting flesh. There's nothing you can do about that except pray for them, love them, and serve them anyway. There are some things we can do to open the door for them, to hear about Christ and to be attracted to him. There's some questions we can ask ourselves or ask a trusted friend about us. Am I that pushy, obnoxious Bible basher that puts people off of Christ? Am I timid, too afraid to let anyone know that I'm a Christian? Am I inconsistent, behaving one way with my Christian friends and another with non-Christians? Am I so much like my non-Christian friends in behaviour and opinions that there's nothing to set me apart from them? Am I intolerant, self-absorbed, only interested in me? Now don't beat yourself up about your family and your friends who reject Christ. If Jesus' own family rejected him, it should be no surprise that they reject you and reject your faith as well. If you've answered those questions and more that you might think of honestly and found that you're doing your best to represent him, we can only do so much given our fallen natures and the fact that we are not omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. We're limited in what we can do. But if you've done your best to represent your Lord well, then leave the result in his hands. As J.C. Ryle said, living in Christ's own company was not enough to make men believers. In our Lord Jesus Christ there was not, no fault either in temper, word or deed. Yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in him. Young, you are called to represent Christ faithfully while you live. But you are not responsible for the salvation of other people. That's God's work. That's not yours. The end of the day, salvation is of the Lord. The Bible's clear about that. He will bring about the salvation of whoever he wants at the time that he wants. No one gets saved unless God decides it's time to save them. And you can't do anything, have you noticed, to overrule God. You might want your friends and your family to be saved tomorrow. If God's saying, no, it's not going to be for 10 years, for 50 years. You can't overrule that. So stop trying. And stop coming down on yourself. And let him do his work in his time. In the meantime, we need to be praying for our friends, for our family, for our workmates, for people around the world who haven't yet heard Christ, who reject Christ at the moment. And we need to be representing our Lord as faithfully as we can. I invite you all to come forward and uh, we'll share communion together. If you'd like to come.
come and uh, we'll just take a moment to get a glass of juice and a piece of bread. I invite you all to stand with me as we take the Lord's Supper. This piece of bread and this glass of juice we know represents the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross on our behalf. And one of the things it tells me is that Christ wants to save our family and our friends. He was the Lamb of God that was slain for the salvation of the world. So as we take this, let's be reminded that not only did he pour his blood out and give up his life on that cross for us, he did it for those friends, family, workmates, our descendants who haven't yet heard the message of Christ. And let's ask him as we share in this to extend this cleansing blood to them as well. Father, we thank you that you saw the mess that we had made of our lives, not just us, but all our ancestors, right back to Adam, by our sin, our rejection, our rebellion. And Lord, that you had a plan from before the foundation of the world to deal with that. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son who came willingly to represent us before the courtrooms of heaven to take on the guilt and the shame of our sin to carry the punishment of death on our behalf that we might receive life for his death we thank you Lord that his blood cleanses us from sin, from guilt. That it allows us to come into your presence, holy and heavenly Father, with boldness, with confidence, with clear conscience. And we ask, Lord, that you extend that same grace to our brothers, our sisters, our parents, our children, our friends, our workmates. Jesus, your body and your blood represented here in this communion today tells me that you are still a saving God, that you still have a heart to save people. So we ask for their souls, Lord. We ask for their salvation. And we thank you for ours. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Would you take and eat and drink? Thank you, Father, that you have given us your word to help us to know you, to understand you, to grow in our faith and our relationship, to encourage each other with, to learn. Lord, we thank you that you're not a God who is silent, but a God who speaks and speaks through your word and speaks to us every day. Holy Spirit, we ask that these words of John's Gospel, that you'll write them on our heart, on our mind this coming week, Lord, and that you will use them to shape us and conform us into the image of your dear Son, Jesus Christ.
Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here and those who are uh, hearing this remotely, Lord. I pray for them that this week you will be with them, you will show your faithfulness to them this week in ways that cause them uh, to rejoice and to love you more, Lord. And we pray, Lord, for our friends and our family that you'll cause them to come to us and say, tell me about this Jesus Christ. Why does he mean so much to you? And that you'll give us the words to speak that will open their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.